We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. Welcome to another water cooler conversation. John O'Sullivan is a leading conservative thinker. He's a journalist, an editor, and a former advisor to Margaret Thatcher. He's the author of The President, The Pope, and The Prime Minister, Three Who Changed the World, a definitive history of the events that led up to the collapse of the Berlin Wall 33 years ago this November. Today, as we face the threat of a resurgent Russia under Vladimir Putin, John finds himself on the front line as a resident of Hungary. He joins me today from Budapest where he heads up the Danube Institute. John, welcome back to the Water Cooler Conversation. Very nice to see you again, Nick. Hope you're well. In my introduction, I have tried to make it a little bit dramatic and say you're on the front line. Uh, how close do you feel to the, the conflict in Ukraine in there in Budapest? We're actually fairly close. That is to say, the um, border is only at three hours from Budapest. We're, it's a direct border, by the way. Um, there's, we're, we're a neighbouring country to Ukraine, uh, one of seven uh, countries. And the, um, the border is, at the moment, a very lively, active place because people are coming over from Ukraine. In fact, Hungary has accepted more than 200,000 refugees, and I think the total number is going to end up with a very large one, the total number of refugees to all places, mainly uh, Poland and Hungary, uh, is probably at the moment about two, almost three million, and will probably go above that. Yeah, that, that, that in itself is a huge challenge, right? I mean, this is, this is way higher than the numbers we saw come from the Middle East, and they're coming more quickly. How's Hungary coping on that one? Is it finding itself able to cope with this great influx? The answer is the government program is very active. The difference between the refugees from the Middle East and the refugees in this occasion are really as follows. We know that all of these refugees are genuine refugees. We know they're fleeing from bombs, from military assaults, from the worst, from a modern war. Secondly, they're not in any sense economic migrants. Anybody who gets out of that particular maelstrom is going to be seen as a victim. Secondly, the, there is a limited number of them. Now, the limited number is quite high, if you think about it, because the population of, um, of Ukraine is 40 million. Now, the population of the Middle East and North Africa uh, goes far, far above that. Uh, so you don't, f I think the people in Poland and, uh, and Ukraine don't feel they're dealing with a limitless number of people. And it, this is very similar, in fact, to the way that the world, and particularly the West, treated Hungarian refugees after 1956. A lot of sympathy, a lot of understanding, and the sense that these people were going to be distributed essentially across the Western world, and particularly, of course, to Australia, among other places, particularly, I think, to Melbourne. But having said that, it is a big administrative burden, and so far, it's early days, the Hungarian government seems to be handling it pretty well. One thing you can say about the, this, this government, and of course it's a, some controversy about it, um, is that it's, it actually governs well in the sense of administratively it does what's needed to solve problems and um, it seems to be doing so on this occasion. Now I shouldn't exaggerate the drama in Budapest. At the railway station you can see migrants coming in and then 
people are, uh, are helping them, distributing to homes and so on and so forth. Um, there is a sense of anxiety in Budapest, I would say, and in Hungary and in all the surrounding countries. Um, but there isn't as yet the sense that the war has come home here. I think there are minor signs it's beginning to bite on people's lives. I think that you look at the restaurant menus and so on, they're slightly smaller than they used to be, that kind of thing, very minor signs. But people are aware uh, that there is um, something very dramatic and, and people would say here very evil happening next door and they have to be prepared to help its victims. John, you were over here a few years back to give the John Howard lecture and I think in introducing you on that occasion when I mentioned your book, The President, the Pope and the Prime Minister, I described it as a definitive account of the events leading up to the end of the Cold War. Rather foolish of me, I think, in hindsight. What do you think? I mean, did we ever leave the Cold War? I think we left the Cold War very clearly in 1989 and 91, and then for the next decade and a half. The big change came with the departure of Yeltsin and the arrival of Vladimir Putin. Now, that change was gradual, which is why we um, were surprised by it in a way when its full ramifications became clear. But remember, we had a very good relationship with the Yeltsin regime, and NATO in particular had a good relationship with Russia. There was a, a whole series of treaties between NATO countries, NATO and NATO countries, and with Russia. They were aiming at um, a good long-term cooperative relationship, and for a while that, that seemed to work. And uh, it wasn't particularly disturbed uh, by the, the, the entry into NATO of countries like Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic, and so on, or even with um, Romania and Bulgaria. So things changed really internally in Russia rather than as a result of NATO expansion. I think my view would be very clear on this. We shouldn't be bamboozled by Russian propaganda to think that they're the victims of, of an encirclement. It's absurd, really. Things are bad now between the two sides, but that began decisively, I think, in 2008, when two things happened. Uh, one was the Russo-Georgian War, uh, which was, in effect, uh, well, it was a contrived invasion, a contrived aggression, uh, which Putin managed to bamboozle the Georgians into responding before they were attacked, so to speak, the same year there was the Wall Street crash and uh, the financial crash gave the very first signs, not only to Putin, unfortunately, but to other people in uh, this part of the world, that the Western economic system was much weaker than they thought. And, and then, of course, he went still further, annexed Crimea, but also, in a sense, created two fake little statelets in Luhansk and Donbass. And they are still, in a sense, up for grabs um, in, in the debate over what happens to Ukraine. How much of this can we put down to the character, the ambitions of Vladimir Putin? And how much of this is the Russian spirit coming to the fore that perhaps would have come to the fore anyway, whether or not he was in charge? Well, I think you can say that the Russians have a problem with all of their neighbours because they have never given up what I would call the greater Russia neo-imperial mindset. 
They don't regard the countries which were once part of the Russian Empire or the Soviet Union as independent states able to determine their own future and, if necessary, pursuing a different foreign policy or economic policy to Russia. By the way, there are hints of that attitude in the European Union towards Britain. I mean, there's no doubt that quite a lot of the animus to Britain is that they really feel Britain had no right to break away. In this case, by the way, the Brits and the European Union are on the same side very clearly and doing very similar things, sometimes the same things. They are helping the refugees. The Brits have been more generous and active in providing the um, Ukrainians with military training and weapons than anybody else, and not only the Ukrainians, but the Baltic states, which feel threatened. So at the moment, therefore, you could say that all these countries are responding to this neo-imperial mindset. Putin has essentially been the man who's revived that mindset, but not alone. I mean, he represents a significant section of uh, Russian opinion. The people who run the country, the clique, they are uh, essentially, there's the Siloviki they are, that's to say former KGB operatives uh, or operatives from the security and intelligence services. They are determined to try to restore Russia as a great power. And again, they have this highly flexible, aggressive attitude to their near neighbors. And they gave it up for a while, but it's come rushing back. And fundamentally, this is a great tragedy. It's a great tragedy because there is another course they could have pursued. And indeed, the one thing you could say where I would be very critical of the West is that they didn't take sympathetically enough the requests of Yeltsin on several occasions and Putin initially that Russia should join NATO. This could not have happened as quickly as they would have liked. Um, after all, the new members of NATO had joined NATO precisely in order to defend themselves against Russia, so they wouldn't be happy about inviting the fox into the hen house. But it should have been made far more clear and, um, in a sense, far more urgently that we recognised the desire of Russia to become fully a part of Euro-Atlantic structures, and the, we should have we did some things, but we should have gone further in making plain this was our long-term aim. Uh, and I think, by the way, the rise of China would eventually have pushed everybody to see it was in the Russia's interest and in ours to join NATO. But we didn't go down that path. We went down the other path of reviving Russia as a great power, which it cannot be economically. And although, and we're now seeing, frankly, the big surprise, it's really not up to it militarily because the performance of the Russian army in this campaign against Ukraine shows that they would not do very well against the whole of NATO. At the Menzies Research Centre, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Centre from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe 
or click on the link in the podcast notes. I must admit, we're some way distant. You're, you're much closer. I was surprised. I was surprised by the European response, how robust it was and has been. Uh, were you? And more to the point, do you think Vladimir Putin was surprised? Um, I was not surprised that they would respond bravely and well. One has had the impression for the last three or four years that the Ukrainians were preparing um, and with the help particularly of the British, but also with other members of NATO, um, they were preparing to fight a battle and to do it intelligently and with new weapons. Now, successive American governments, and this is a strong criticism, I think, they delayed um, sending lethal weapons and training the Ukrainians in how to use them time and time again. The Obama administration was very bad at that. Trump was better, but we still need, we should have done more uh, because that would have been uh, possibly a deter, I mean, a significant hope of deterrence against the Russians. We now see it just how good the Ukrainians are, how bravely they're fighting, um, and they're fighting with several hands tied behind their back. If they had a, a, a proper air force, um, if they had the very latest weapons, they're only getting some of the javelins and other um, weapons now, they would be doing much better. And they're already doing very well. At the moment, they, they're not losing the north, the Kiev battle. And secondly, they are losing ground, seriously dangerous for them, this, uh, in the south, where they face being cut off from their only, um, uh, from their major port. But I will... Say, I'll go on to make a prediction here. And I did predict the, the Ukrainians would do better. Didn't predict how badly the Russians would do. Um, but I did predict, and I will say now, that the battle for Kiev will be the... If it occurs, it will be the opposite of a walkover for the Russians. It will be an urban warfare um, in which the, the defenders are very well prepared. Um, the, the, in the battle for Budapest in the two months, it would be end of um, 44 and, and, 40, and 45, um, in those two months, the Russians lost between 100 and 160,000 men. Now, they were fighting partly the German army and partly uh, remnants of the Hungarian army. Well, not remnants, they were fighting the Hungarian army. Um, and, but I don't think at the moment you could say that performance man for man of the Ukrainians, um, or soldier for soldier, is, um, is it matches very high levels of other armies in other battles. So there will be, um, if the battle for Kiev takes place, and we have seen the urban warfare that we've seen in the Middle East, but also uh, in battles like the battle for Berlin and the battle for uh, Budapest, you will see I think the Russians have a very hard time of it. And since they're already overstretched, and since they're already requesting help from all over the world, from China and from jihadists in the Middle East, um, this is obviously, in real long-term strategic terms, a big defeat for them. Uh, they can retrieve, perhaps, something from that defeat if they seize the South. But I don't, th I don't see, and they may seize other parts of 
of Ukraine. But I don't see people at the end of this saying the Russians acted ruthlessly, but they acted and advanced their interests intelligently. I think rather people will feel that they have lost ground in the world's eyes as a result, not just morally, but also um, as a as a power to be feared. They're not as feared as they were three weeks ago. Volodymyr Zelensky, the, the Ukrainian president, uh, was saying overnight, and I should just say, actually, for for context, we're recording this on the fifteenth uh, of March. Uh, he said last night. He said, "Look, um, th- there will be missiles. There will be attacks on NATO soil. Uh, Hungary being one of those countries, as we said, in the front line. How seriously do you take that? And what would be the consequences? Because, you know, that would mean, wouldn't it, that the NATO the NATO agreement comes into force and uh, and it becomes." A full-on head-to-head conflict with Russia? Um, well, first of all, I think one has to criticise the way that the Biden administration has handled this. Um, one of the things it's been doing, and in my view doing foolishly, is to keep assuring the Russians that they're not going to do something. Oh, you can, you know, we're not going to respond in this way, we're not going to respond in that. And uh, whereas it would be much more intelligent to let the Russians worry what are going to be our responses to various aggressive actions as theirs. Now, they, there are 20, I think about 26 distinguished foreign service and uh, NATO, uh, foreign service in, American, uh, in America and, and NATO um, officers wrote earlier this week um, that they think a limited no-fly zone is a perfectly legitimate response to the... Um, to what the Russians are doing. In, in, in there would be, I suppose, in effect, uh, with a no-fly zone, there would be a war for Ukraine in Ukraine. And I think that those people who advocate a no-fly zone are probably right in thinking that despite the bluster, which foolishly he's used, he's hinted at using nuclear weapons, uh, the, the bluster about that, he cannot, I don't believe he can possibly um, uh, seriously intent because an attack, a nuclear attack uh, on anybody, um, particularly a NATO power, um, would be um, uh, would receive a devastating response, and the Russians are in no position um, to to triumph or even to, to survive in that response. So I, I don't take that seriously, but I do have to take it seriously in a way because using tactical nuclear weapons. Um, uh, is part of the Russian um, um, military doctrine, Russian army's military doctrine. If you're in a, in a situation of existential defeat, so to speak, they uh, urge um, the, they make allowance for the use of tactical nuclear weapons. I don't think they'll do that either. Um, I think this is a battle which is going to be won or lost by conventional forces. And our problem is that because we've ruled out um, intervention on the soil of Ukraine, uh, or um, that's conventional intervention, because we've said we won't do anything that will, in a sense, invite this threat, um, we, we are now left with the fact that we haven't built up our conventional forces, and we haven't built up Ukraine's conventional forces sufficiently to win on the battlefield. We'll see what happens. The Ukrainians may win in uh, in the end, 
A lot of military experts think that's possible simply because the Russian army performance is so bad and because the morale is so low that in the end this attack on Ukraine will kind of crumble. I suppose it might conceivably crumble in the north but still win in the south. So there are quite a few possibilities ahead of us. But having said that, um, the first thing we have to do is to, um, in a sense, restore the doctrine of deterrence. By which I mean that it used to be the case that we would say, well, you can't, you, uh, you can't, um, if a country has got nuclear weapons, you can't attack it. Uh, that seems common sense, really. Um, but now that doctrine has been extended, and partly, I think, inadvertently by the Biden administration, into the argument that if a country has gone has got nuclear weapons, you can't resist it, which is a very different doctrine. In effect, it makes the world safe for conventional um, armed aggression. And that's something which the American military doctrine has got to, you know, NATO doctrine has got to come to terms with. And there are some people, as I say, who favor a no-fly zone. And I myself would say the next step in, in, any, in any escalation on our side should not be that. It should be that we should give the Ukrainians the planes they need to equalize the battle on the ground. I don't see, uh, and the Russians say that they would regard that possibly, and uh, the, the use of military, the provision of military supplies of a serious kind that could change the outcome of the battle, they regard this as unacceptable and they would in some sense retaliate. Well, I mean, they shouldn't be, uh, when we, shouldn't re we should not be cowed by that threat. Now, I'm not a person who is gung-ho about this. What's happening is horrible and we don't want to extend the war. But we certainly don't want to see the destruction of a country and the deaths of millions by a completely uh, brutal uh, and no-holds-barred attack. We, we really have an obligation to um, give what help we can uh, within the rules that we wouldn't actually... Um, um, within the rules that so far, uh, and if we change the rules, we have to make that plain to everybody in advance um, without actually sending troops into um, Ukraine. Yeah, but I mean, at what point do we have to even revisit that? I mean, we've had talk of the Aleppofication policy of, of Russia. That's in reference to the, uh, you know, the, the, the demolition, essentially, of, of Syrian cities, like Aleppo, um, under Russian supervision and Russian support by the Syrian um, government forces. Now, it surely, if if that started to happen, I and mean, we've seen apartment blocks attacked, we've seen hospitals attacked and so forth, but if there was that serious attempt at just demolishing cities and crushing whole populations, can can we really stand back and, and, and watch that happen when we could send in air forces and whatever else to try and mitigate it? Hmm. Well, I think that's a question we haven't even asked ourselves, let alone answered it. And, um, and you're absolutely right. I think one has to say one of the problems with that question is that is, it is addressed entirely to the West. Um, China at the moment is supporting the Russian invasion and is now, according to some reports I've read overnight, it is actually going to give military assistance to it. Maybe not very serious 
assistance. One suggestion was they'll send them um, Chinese military rations, which does tell you that if that if true, um, that the Russian army is in a very bad way indeed. That it actually needs outside help uh, to feed its its soldiers and. We can imagine why that is if you've got a 40-mile column of tanks and armoured vehicles which are not really moving um, and they don't have fuel and they don't have, have uh, provisions for the men. Um, that army is in a very bad way and it may, it may gradually, as, as in the First World War, powerful Russian armies basically just melted away. Uh, the people got out and Ukraine is actually one of the few places where they, that might happen, because um, insofar as the soldier leaves, deserts the Russian army and says, I don't want anything to do with killing Ukrainians, I think he's going to be welcomed by the Ukrainians. It's not a question that he's in, uh, in completely hostile territory. It's very hostile to anyone, uh, any Russian who's actually invading and fighting them. But I think it's the Ukrainians will welcome, um, uh, as, as brothers really, people who desert and say, um, this is a monstrous campaign. We, we didn't know we were coming here. We didn't know the truth. That's already, you're seeing that happening within Russia itself, despite very heavy penalties of uh, long-term imprisonment for people who speak out. You now get a young woman going on television at, um, in the, during interrupting the news program and holding up a banner saying no war. Now she's hustled off and we may not ever see her again. But the point about that is, when you get privileged people speaking out in this way, it may well be the case that the mass of the, of the Russian population at the moment is supporting the war. But I don't think that's necessarily going to be a permanent state of affairs. And when the truth eventually comes out about the way the war is being fought by the Russian army, I think there's going to be a wave of revulsion within Russia itself, um, rather similar to the wave of shame that eclipsed Germany after 1945, when people saw the camps and responded to them. So I, I, don't, I don't rule out a change of heart in the, among the Russian people, and I, I don't regard them as the villains here. Um, I regard the Russian ruling elite as the villain, and I think they may conceivably lose control. Conceivably, I don't say I'd bet a lot of money on it, but nonetheless, they may do so. And certainly, in the long term, there's no way they can rescue their reputations in the West. And, but the Chinese um, don't take this view, and there are other countries around the world which don't take this view. Admittedly, they've shrunk to a very small number of people like North Korea. And um, India, which has been a long ally, has not been supportive of the Russians here. It hasn't wanted to distance itself too much but it didn't, but it abstained in the UN. So the, it's a very small, um, it's not the, we're not fighting Russia, we're fighting Putin and his cronies on the one hand, and the rest of the world um, doesn't want to get involved, but it doesn't like what it's seeing. And the more it sees of that, the more reluctant it will be to let it happen. How we stop it happening, that's a very different matter. Finally, John, that Russia fights now in five theatres of war, land, sea, air, space, and of course, cyberspace. This is where I see that they are having some results. Their aim, as you know, is to sow misinformation into Western media and Western social media in order to confuse, in order to get people to start questioning who's on the right side and who's on the wrong side. 
I think Russia seems to be having some success in this campaign. If you look what's happening in the states right now, where you know the theory that uh, that the 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 Americans have been building or, or, or um, biological weapons in Ukraine, uh, which to me on the surface sounds extraordinarily implausible, but that theory has taken hold. You've got Tucker Carlson on Sky on uh, Fox News. You know, several serious people on the conservative side seem to be taking hold of this stuff. I wonder, is that a victory for Russian misinformation or is it also the fact that there's in, in US politics now is so polarised and there's such absolute mistrust and, and dislike for Biden, for people on the right? Um, first of all, the Russians have been much slower than the Ukrainians in presenting their point of view effectively in, in the last three weeks through the world. Um, part of that is because of the reality that this is a, an aggressive invasion, uh, unjustified by any standard, and is inflicting brutal casualties on innocent civilians and, and infrastructure um, as much as it is on Ukrainian um, um, soldiers. Um, but, uh, and, and, um, and I think, but in addition, the courage of President Zelensky has inspired a lot of people. And the general impression of uh, David uh, be, perhaps beating Goliath, which is uh, the, one of the uh, underlying uh, stories here, that too uh, has been. Um, uh, they, they have the Ukrainians have, in a sense, won most of the propaganda battles. You're quite right that in the last week, um, the Russians have begun to score some victories in that area themselves, and I think all one can say in such allegations as. Uh, biological warfare is, look into them, but we should remember that as far back as the Korean War, um, um, aided by um, an Australian, Wilfred Burchard, as a matter of fact, the North Koreans and the Soviets managed to convince uh, a lot of the world that the GIs were using biological warfare there, which they were not, and subsequently we, we looked into it. So look into it by all means, but with, with the proper scepticism that we should um, have on these occasions. And the, the deeper problem, it seems to me, that you are pointing to, Nick, is that the uh, wing of the conservative movement, which um, is important and, and is not unreasonable at all, um, has become convinced over the uh, years that the Americans have wasted the treasure uh, and, um, and often manhood in intervening abroad, in getting involved uh, in uh, Iraq, in, in the Middle East, in um, and in other conflicts, and the time has finally come for them to return home and to improve America. Now, that's a naturally left-wing sentiment as well, but it's taken hold in and for, not for bad reasons uh, on the right, and the suspicion um, has been developed and. We're not talking about left or right here, but there is, so to speak, a general atmosphere of suspicion pervading American life that looks for sinister and hidden motives and actions um, behind almost every crisis. Um, the, but the, the, so the suspicion has taken hold on the right in this case that um, this war is something that is designed to drag us back into the kind of interventionism that we finally pulled away from. I have some sympathy with the underlying sentiments there, but the truth of the matter is 
that this is not um, that, that that this is a battle, which obviously um, it, it 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 should appeal to everybody who wants um, freedom and justice in in the world, not political ideas, but just decency in being governed and. Uh, and that there's a danger that people on the right are going to put themselves um, uh, at variance with what is that strong human sentiment. And I don't think um, I don't think myself that a lot of the criticisms are completely unreasonable, uh, um, but I do think that um, the interests of the United States, as well as as well as human sentiment, the interests of the United States are to keep or to preserve the post-Cold War settlement in Europe. And the, this crisis began not with the invasion of Ukraine. It began um, two months before that, when Vladimir Putin's Russia sent a diplomatic note to the West, essentially demanding, well, demanding that the countries that joined NATO after 1997 should leave it. That's essentially this country, Poland, the Czech Republic and so on, um, and um, and in effect demanding uh, the withdrawal of NATO from uh, the Eastern and Central Europe, and it's now made clear in the invasion of Ukraine that it's serious about that and, and is prepared to f uh, fight for it. That's a, that's a basic American interest, the preservation of Europe as an ally of the United States and not as a satrapy of Russia, a basic American interest. Um, and in a world in which China is a power of rising importance, one does not want to see Europe becoming more influenced or more a friend, not a friend exactly, but, but more um, a victim and a subordinate to Russia, um, which is an ally of China. It makes no sense for us in, in the West to write off um, Eastern and Central Europe because that would, in the end, mean writing off the rest of Europe too, and 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 one of the good things about what's happening now is the way the NATO and the EU and Europe in general has rallied. They've, in a sense, revived in surprising way. The Germans have now overturned most of the policies of the Merkel years, and they're now going to reduce their dependence upon Russian energy. They're going to massively increase their defense spending. And Germany is the most, in a sense, when people are looking at Europe and wondering why it has not done, why it has not preserved its uh, sense of um, its, its strong democracy and its strong economies and, its, uh, it, and, and match them with a the strong defense. Germany is the case for the prosecution. The, the Germans have now crossed the floor of that argument and they are now, along with almost everyone else in Europe, well, not just everyone else in NATO and Europe, but also countries like Finland and Sweden, which are now saying, as a result of what Putin is doing, they want the protection of being in NATO as well. So Putin has unified Europe and NATO and the Western alliance against himself. He's made um, the free Europe even more attractive to places like Finland and Sweden and um, Moldova and elsewhere than it was before. And that has to be considered a defeat for him because he's no longer facing um, a, a, a continent that is divided, weak, um, anti-American and sympathetic to, to Russia. He's finding that he's 
created an alliance of democracies against himself on much firmer footing than before. John, thank you very much for your commentary. Thank you for your pieces in uh, in Quadrant. We look forward to those every month. You'll be writing on this, I think, for the April issue. We look forward to that piece. And uh, thank you for bringing us your perspective from Budapest. One final thing. Uh, you, can I advertise my book, uh, The Woke Versus the West, which is um, being uh, distributed by, um, by Quadrant. And um, I hope, you know, um, it, it, I think your audience, Nick, and... The Menzies Institute is a natural, um, a natural purchaser of this book. Sounds just our cup of tea, John. <laughs> Don't worry about that. We'll be back uh, as soon as that one's in print. We'll be uh, back to talk to you again. Okay. Uh, and uh, hope perhaps to welcome you down in Australia now. Things have eased up a little. Always good to see you. Well, thanks, Nick. I very much look forward to seeing Australia again, from which, like everybody else, I've been exiled. Thanks, John. <laughs> All the best. You've been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Listener.